invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 20. 1 Kings chapter 20. We're going to be reading verses 26 through 32, although we'll be looking at the full chapter of uh, chapter 20 throughout the sermon, but 26 through 32 will give us a good introduction to what uh, is happening in these verses. Now, as we come to chapter 20 of 1 Kings, we need to understand that the kings of the Old Testament give us a picture or a shadow of what the true kingship is to be in the coming Lord Jesus Christ. You see, in Old Testament Israel, there were three main offices that served as types or foreshadows of the future ministry of Jesus Christ. First, there was the prophet. And the prophet would reveal the word of God to the people of God, even as Jesus came as the full revelation of God, revealing to us his will for our salvation. In the Old Testament, there is the office of the priest. The priest would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people of God to make atonement for sin. But the Lord Jesus came to fulfill that office completely, offering himself as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and to reconcile us to God. And third, there was the king, who was to justly rule over the people of God and defend them from their enemies, even as the Lord Jesus came to rule over and defend his people by restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. This is the work of the kings, to rule over and defend his people. The king must hold at bay the enemies of his people and conquer them when their threats become blows and their evil intents become tragic realities. As we have watched the horrific events in Ukraine unfold, we are reminded of the need for leaders who will courageously stand up to evil. Many of us have been inspired by the heroics of Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky. Now famously, he said when offered evacuation from Ukraine by the U.S., I don't need a ride, I need more ammunition. But we've also been reminded that no matter how courageous, all of our kings and leaders are still just men. Some of these men are weak, some are ignorant, some are incompetent, and some of the leaders of our nations are just plain evil. Zelensky cannot give his people the salvation that they desire. NATO cannot give the world the security for which it yearns. And Vladimir Putin cannot attain the glory after which he lusts. For the kingdoms and nations of, these, of this world continue in their conflicts. And yet, reigning over all is one Lord and one King. That is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. The Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And He alone can bring His people the salvation that they need, even deliverance from their enemies. Our passage for this morning is about the Lord's grace to restrain, conquer, and ultimately destroy the enemies of God's people. Ahab, the king of Israel, takes center stage in this chapter. And we see that the Lord gives him grace and empowers him to destroy his enemy, 
Ben-Hadad of Syria. However, instead of receiving this grace and destroying the enemy, Ahab makes peace with Ben-Hadad and rejects the Lord's blessing. Through the work of King Jesus, we have been given the grace to see our most vile enemies destroyed. For through His work as our King, He has freed us from sin and Satan and death itself. And everyone who is willing to submit to Christ as their king will receive such a salvation. So hear now the word of the Lord, 1 Kings chapter 20, beginning in verse 26. In the spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the people of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went against them. The people of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats. But the Syrians filled the country. And man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord, Because the Syrians have said, The Lord is a God of the hills, but He is not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And they encamped opposite one another seven days. Then on the seventh day, the battle was joined, and the people of Israel struck down the Syrians, 100,000 foot soldiers in one day, and the rest fled into the city of Aphek, and the wall fell upon 27,000 men who were left. Then Hadad also fled and entered an inner chamber in the city, and his servant said to him, Behold now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Let us put sackcloth around our waists and ropes on our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. So they tied sackcloth around their waists and put ropes on their heads and went to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Ben-Hadad says, Please let me live. And he said, Does he still live? He is my brother. This is God's holy word for us as people. Let us pray. Almighty God, we come to you now and we come to your word in this day. And we pray, O Lord, that you would anoint the preaching of your word with your spirit. Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be acceptable and pleasing unto you. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Our chapter for this morning tells us of two battles that occur between Syria and Israel during the reign of King Ahab, of which we read of the second battle that happened between these two nations. Now, the first battle occurs in verses 1 through 22 of our text, and we are told that Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathers a large coalition of smaller kingdoms to his side to come against Israel. Now, their initial demand is servitude. The king of Syria wants to make Israel what we call a vassal state or a puppet state. They want Israel to do their bidding, right? Like Belarus is under the control of Russia and does whatever Russia tells them to do, so too would Israel, under Syria's request, be under their control and do whatever they want. 
You see, at this point in history, the Assyrians, not the Syrians, the Assyrians, are beginning to emerge as a world power. And they're beginning to invade surrounding lands. And so Syria needed to ensure that they had enough resources and allies so that they could defend themselves against the encroaching Assyrian advances. So Syria goes to Israel, says, submit to us. And being spineless and unwilling to stand up to an enemy, Ahab says, sure, go ahead. We'll do whatever you want us to do. However, Ben-Hadad is encouraged by Ahab's weakness and unwillingness to stand up. And so he says, you know what? If they're going to be that weak, why not just take the whole country? There's no appeasing the aggressor, right? Give Putin Crimea, he's going to take Ukraine. Give Ben-Hadad political control of Israel. He wants the whole thing, the wealth and the power. So now Ahab's in a difficult position, right? He knows he cannot resist Syria on his own, but he doesn't want to give up the whole country to a foreign king. He's stuck. There's nowhere to hide. There's no military options that he can seek. The weakness of Israel following an extended drought made the country an easy target. Ahab's obsession with following the false gods of his wife Jezebel had put the security of the whole nation at risk. He had killed prophets, he had abandoned God's word, he left his country vulnerable, and now the enemy is at the doorstep. Yet amid his trouble, the Lord graciously sends help. We don't read of anything that Ahab did to receive such a blessing. There's no recorded prayer that he prayed. There's no repentance that he made for his evil ways. However, the Lord in his love for his people sends a word of deliverance to Ahab. Verse 13 of chapter 20, you can look and see what the Lord says. says Thus says the Lord. Have you seen all this great multitude, right? Have you seen Syria? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day. And you shall know that I am the Lord. The Lord commands an attack. And the Syrian king is caught off guard. He does not think that Israel would come and attack him. And so they're caught off guard. And we read in verse 21, And the king of Israel went out and struck the horses and chariots and struck the Syrians with a great blow. The Lord gives grace to restrain our enemies. To keep them at bay. He moves to ensure that the promises of his covenant are fulfilled on behalf of his people. And though the king of Israel had abandoned the Lord in his ways, the Lord had not abandoned his people to the enemy. And this is the way that the Lord works. Despite our sin and rebellion, he comes to restrain the evil forces that enslave us, his people. For this is the work that the Lord Jesus did when he came. For we read in Mark 5 of a man who was possessed with a demon named Legion. And this name means that he was controlled, that he was possessed by a multitude of evil spirits. Maybe even up to a thousand evil spirits were controlling this man. And it caused him to act destructively against himself and against others. 
But Jesus came to restrain the enemy that was coming against this poor man. And he spoke a word and legion fled from this man. In Colossians 2, we read a summary of the restraining work of the Lord against those who would come against us. For in verse 15 of Colossians 2, we read, The Lord disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. You see, Jesus, as our King, has come to restrain the evil forces at work in this world. Even as Ahab was empowered by the Lord to restrain Syria on behalf of the people of Israel, so too was the Lord Jesus Christ anointed with the Spirit that He would come and He would restrain the advances of the enemy against His people. He has come to deliver you from slavery to sin and the torments of the evil one. He's disarmed and he's shamed all those forces that would come against his people. While we are filled with weakness and fear, the word of God assures us that the Lord is in control. That our enemy cannot make a move without the Lord's permission. That our enemy is restrained. That he is a dog on a chain that can only go as far as the Lord allows him to go. It's a fearful thing. To see the world on the precipice of war. But we must have hope that our king is in control and he is restraining our enemies. And while the predations of Putin against the Ukrainian people may make us fearful, let us not give in to such fear. For our king is ruling over. He is defending us. And he is restraining our enemies. Now somehow, in the confusion of this first battle, Ben-Hadad is able to escape. And so we get a sequel to our first battle. And this time, the Lord does not only restrain Syria, does not only rebuff their advances, but even more, He conquers them through Ahab. You see, Ben-Hadad still has his security issues with Assyria, and therefore he still needs Israel. And he recognizes that his army needs to have some improvement so they won't lose again. So we read that he makes a few changes. First, the kings that were leading these little regiments of his army, they're basically fired, and he gets competent commanders to rule over his troops who won't be fearful and run away at the first sign of attack. Second, with the help of his theologians, he decides that a battle in the plains of Canaan will give him a better chance of victory, right? They're like, hey, we were up in the hills, and Israel, their God is a God of the hills. That was the problem, we were up in the hills. But if you go down to the plains, their gods don't have any power there. So we can destroy them in the plains. Verse 23, we read, Their gods are gods of the hills. And so they are stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain. And surely we shall be stronger than they. You see, these false prophets assume that the Lord's power is somehow connected to the hill of Samaria, where the temple was built in Israel. Right? He's the mountain god. Go down into the plains, we'll have victory. So the second battle is set. 
This time it will take place outside of Aphek, in the northern plains of Canaan. And again, the odds are against Israel. And again, Syria has the advantage of numbers and also technology because they had chariots that now could run across these flat plains against the people of Israel. But again, the Lord sends His gracious word of salvation through His prophet. Look at verse 28. It says, Thus says the Lord, Because the Syrians have said, The Lord is a God of the hills, but He is not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Now we read that for seven days, these armies survey each other, right? The tension building with each day, who's going to make the first move. But then on the seventh day, the battle ensues. Now we're not given details of the tactics of how it is that Israel ended up winning this victory over the Syrians. But what we do read is that they routed them and chased them back into the city of Aphek, that a 100,000 of the foot soldiers were destroyed on the plains. And those who were left ran inside the walls of the city. But the wall fell down and killed another 27,000 men. You see, the Lord does not only cause a victory to come about, but He completely conquers the enemy. They're not going to come back a third time. And the Lord has upheld His word. He's delivered Israel's enemy into their hand. He has completely conquered them. What a blessing to have an enemy conquered. Again, over the last two weeks, we've watched the army of Russia brutally attack the people of Ukraine. And many of us have rejoiced when their advances have been slowed. But what great rejoicing there will be when, he, when Russia is completely conquered and the people of Ukraine are finally free from their onslaught. The people of Kiev and Kharkiv and Odessa will sing for joy on that day because their enemy has been conquered. For it is a blessing of the Lord when those who would seek our lives and our lands are conquered. And we who have Christ as our King should rejoice at His victory. For He has conquered all of our enemies. The Word of God tells us that by the work of Christ that we have been freed from slavery to sin, that He went to the cross and He poured out His blood that our sins might be forgiven. The Word of God tells us that we have been freed from the world and the power that the world brings against us. And the Word of God tells us that we have been freed from the fear of death itself. In the book of Hebrews chapter 2 we read, Through death... Christ destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And he has delivered all of those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Let that sink in. If Christ is your king, then you have been freed from sin. The guilt of sin has been erased. The power of sin has been removed. If Christ is your King, then you have been freed from the world. No longer are you subject to the schemes of tyrants or the misuse of imbeciles. And if Christ is your King, then you are no longer subject to the fear of death. 
For when Christ rose from the dead, He defeated death on your behalf. He took the sting out of death, and you need no longer live enslaved to fearing it. You see, we live in a culture and a time that believes that death is the worst thing that can happen to a person. We believe that dying is the ultimate evil. And therefore, we will avoid death by all means. We'll do whatever we have to do so that death does not come upon us. And therefore, we are held captive by the threat of death. The tyrants of this world can control anyone who fears death above anything else because all they have to do is threaten death and people will submit to them. We allow our fear to drive us to submission, to drive us to slavery to the tyrants of this world. And maybe this is why what is happening in Ukraine is so captivating to us. Because as the Ukrainians resist, they are declaring to a watching world that there is something that is worse than death. There is something more insidious than the grave. And it is slavery to a tyrant. And so rejoice, Christian. Sing praises. Because you were once slaves to sin. You were once slaves to Satan. You were once slaves to the fear of death. But no longer are you a slave. Even as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, In all things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you want to live free? The Word of God says it is for freedom that Christ set you free. No longer submit to sin. No longer submit to this world. No longer submit to the fear of death. For they have all been conquered. And yet, Ahab rejects the Lord's grace. To destroy his enemy. You see, now is the time to be rid of Ben-Hadad. Now is the time to put an end to his troubling of Israel. He's retreated into the city. The walls of the city have been destroyed. And all that is left to do is to go in and destroy him. But Ahab has other plans. Instead of destroying his enemy... We read that he calls him brother and makes a covenant with him and lets him go. Twice now, the Lord has given deliverance from the Syrian foe. Twice he has given Ahab a miraculous victory. And Ahab acts as though it's his victory. And so the Lord sends his word to Ahab a third time in this chapter. Now how this comes about is a rather strange event. We read that a prophet of the Lord is asked to be struck in the face, but the man who he asked to strike him in his face says, No, no, I'm not going to hit you. Why would I do that? 
And so soon after refusing, he gets mauled by a lion. So a second man is conscripted to strike the prophet. And I don't know if he knew what had happened to the first guy, but he's like, yeah, okay, I'll hit you. (laughs) Whatever, man. And so with this wounded face, the prophet of the Lord approaches Ahab, disguised as a battle-worn soldier. And he explains to Ahab that he was in charge of watching over a prisoner. But he'd become distracted in the prisoner escape. And he asked Ahab, what should my punishment be for letting the enemy go when he was right under my care? And the king declares that he should be killed for allowing the enemy to go. Oh, the irony of this situation. For Ahab can clearly see that allowing the enemy to escape is no small matter. He can make a clear judgment about someone else's sin but he can't see his own. And in dramatic fashion, the prophet pulls off his disguise and declares the Lord's judgment in verse 42. Look there, it says, Thus says the Lord, because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I have devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life and your people for his people. That phrase, devoted to destruction, is very important. We see it throughout the Old Testament. And it refers to something or someone that has been set aside by the Lord for absolute destruction. It's been declared by the Lord that it belongs to Him for the purpose of judgment and condemnation. The Lord is judged. And as judge, he has devoted Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, to destruction because he has come to destroy the nation of Israel. And this is the final way that we see the kingly work of Christ displayed. But this time in contrast to Ahab. For while Ahab allows those devoted to destruction to live, Christ executes perfect Judgment against the enemies of God. In 2 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul tells us of the coming judgment of Christ on the day of His return. For there it says, The Lord Jesus on the day of His return will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Sometimes we can become a little uncomfortable with the idea of judgment and eternal destruction. We can get behind and we can rejoice at the forgiveness of sin, but we're not sure about the judgment of sin. Right? We want to be merciful like the kings of Israel that let their enemies go. But we have to realize that it was an indictment upon Ahab that Ben-Hadad and his counselors said, you know, the kings of Israel are merciful. They're not merciful to just regular folks. They're merciful to those who are in power. They're merciful to those whom they can receive benefit 
from. You see, it was an indictment against Ahab that he was merciful to Ben-Hadad. Because he allowed the one who was devoted to destruction to go. So that he could continue to wreak havoc against the people of God. The word of God is clear. Those who do not receive the gospel of Christ, those who continue to work evil and transgress the law of God, those who continue to follow after the prince of the power of the air, Satan himself, they have been devoted by God to destruction, and not only destruction, but the word of God says eternal destruction. Christ is king, and he must defeat his enemies and our enemies. And therefore, we must trust Him. We must no longer submit to sin and Satan and death, for they will each be conquered, and ultimately, they will each be destroyed. For there is a day coming when sin will not only be forgiven, but it will be eliminated from our lives. There is a day when Satan and all who follow him will be thrown into the lake of fire, never to escape, never to come against God's people again. There is a day when death will be no more and we will live eternally under the reign and rule of our all-powerful and righteous King. No more will threats come against the people of God, but we will have peace only. But we must in faith wait for that day. For the kings and rulers of our age cannot give us the peace that we long for. For even the best of our rulers are but men. Ahab, the king of Israel, was given victory over Syria twice. However, instead of putting Ben-Hadad to death, he called him brother and made a covenant with him. Did you imagine? Somehow, by God's grace... The Russian president, Putin, was delivered into the hands of the Ukrainian people and Zelensky embraced him and said, Hey, brother! Yeah, I know we had our little disagreement. It's okay. Let's just move on. That is not justice. That is not right. We cannot give in to the idea that we can just allow evil to go unpunished. If he were to do that, he would desecrate every civilian and soldier who gave their life to defend their country. But our Lord, our King, does not embrace evil. Rather, he restrains, conquers, and destroys those evil forces that come against them. In Revelation 19, we are given a picture of the culmination of Christ's kingly work. To defend his people and destroy our enemies. There we read, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. 
And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Christian, in this day of our trouble, do not submit to fear. Do not make friends with this world, but trust our good and gracious King to deliver us from all of our enemies. For He restrains them, He conquers them, and ultimately He devotes them to destruction. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father God, we come to you and we're reminded, Lord, from your word that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the spiritual forces of darkness that are at work in this age. So let us gird ourselves up for the battle that is before us. Going forth not fearing death, but fearing you alone. Let us, O Lord, speak the truth of your word. And we, Lord, are reminded that our enemy comes against us, but we tremble not for him, because his doom is you. For your word will cause him. We pray this all in Christ's holy name. Amen.